Welcome to the Labor Force Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Strukin, proud member of New York State United Teachers, celebrating 50 years this year. On today's show, we'll be talking about the generational resurgence of the labor movement. We'll also reflect on those 50 years of NYSIT through the lens of collective bargaining, how it was never a given, and what happens when the state restricts it, as in the case of Wisconsin in Act 10. Passed in 2011, it has had ramifications for labor there ever since. Finally, who's in your laborhood? The importance of connecting with others who have a boss, just like you probably do. I'm sitting here contentedly sipping my full, rich, Tughill Artisan Roasters coffee, Running George, whole bean medium. The back of the bag relays the story of Running George as a unique figure in local lore. George Jacunzi, 1893-1970, is one of the Tug Hill's most famous residents. George was a blacksmith often seen running through the woods to different farms and logging crews to shoe horses and fix iron appliances. While running, George would carry his tools in his sack. People would joke that he would also carry his anvil. One year, George made such a scene running around the track at the Lewis County Fair that the fair hosted a running George attraction for many years to come. Later in life, George took up biking to get around, which he thought of simply as running in place. Running George passed away in 1970, but being the larger-than-life character that he was, we at Tughill Artisan Roasters want his legacy to live on in our medium Brazilian roast. Now, forgive me if I find that more wholesome and endearing than a corporatized mocha cookie crumble frappuccino or a blonde vanilla latte, but if you don't share my sentiments and still need your quaff of sugar and fluff in the morning, remember that patience and kindness are both virtues, and leave a tip. We're all exhausted. Some of us get here at 4.30 in the morning. We're up at 4 a.m. to make this coffee, and, you know, to not be treated like what we're doing is not only difficult, but it's important. When it's not done right, it can ruin people's day. The Starbucks Workers United movement has slowed from its initial surge, but remains steadfast. As of this recording, 275 stores have voted to unionize around the country. Organizers say Starbucks has chilled the effort with hard-nosed tactics, including firing pro-union workers and closing unionized stores. Starbucks has also promised wage increases and other benefits at non-union stores. In negotiations, the union has adopted a hybrid strategy where a national Starbucks Workers United representative would call in via Zoom to support each store's employees in their scheduled meeting with Starbucks representatives. Not surprisingly, Starbucks flatly rejects this arrangement. In November, workers at over 100 stores went on strike in what they called the Red Cup Rebellion over Starbucks' refusal to bargain. They picked a day with significance for the company and its most loyal customers, November 17th, Red Cup Day the one day in the year when the company gives out free, reusable holiday cups to promote its holiday drink menu. As Michigan organizer Grace Norris said, we show them that we're a nationally coordinated movement and we're taking this very seriously. All we want to do is sit down and bargain our very reasonable demands. I think we made our message to Starbucks very clear, and now the ball is in their court. In April, JFK 8 in Staten Island became the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S. to be unionized, shortly after Jeff Bezos blasted himself into space and thanked the workers for making it possible. 
while presiding over working conditions resulting in an approximately 100% turnover rate in Amazon warehouses nationwide, according to the New York Times. We want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space because when he was up there, he was starting to be, we was down there, can't win. As Mother Jones reports, more than eight months later, the National Labor Relations Board has certified the election results, bringing the fledgling union one step closer to entering contract negotiations. Amazon workers won their 2022 union election by a margin of 523 votes out of 4,785 valid ballots, according to an NLRB filing. Amazon appealed the results, arguing that organizers intimidated workers to vote for the union. The NLRB dismissed Amazon's 25 objections and certified that a majority of the valid ballots had been cast for Amazon Labor Union. Still, Amazon has not been willing to recognize the union or negotiate a contract. Cassio Mendoza, an Amazon worker and spokesperson for the union, told Mother Jones that the union's ultimate goal was to transform Amazon labor from gig work into a career with changes to pay, working conditions, and benefits. We're still just fighting for collective bargaining itself, Mendoza said. Within the next few months, we're basically trying to ramp up pressure on Amazon until they come to the table and we can start really getting into the bargaining process. Both of these were true watershed moments for the revival of a dormant, repressed labor movement after over 40 years of union-busting neoliberalism, corporate largesse, skyrocketing production, and stagnant wages, and the resulting economic inequality working people acutely feel. If that wasn't enough, in May, the U.S. recorded 1 million COVID-19 deaths, a staggering, grim figure, the highest death toll by far in the world. In the midst of these events, Gallup polling indicated that approval of unions nationwide had reached a 50-year high, with 68% of Americans expressing a positive view of worker power, the highest percentage since 1965. Maybe the pandemic showed us that life is too precious to be a cog in a machine, to be exploited, to work and work for little return. Maybe it implicitly taught us the importance of our self-worth, within the hard edges of capitalism. Workers across the country and wide-ranging industries asserted their worth in the past year, from large, prominent corners of the economy to the small and obscure. There is nothing small to this list, including but not limited to Trader Joe's and Chipotle workers, John Deere workers, coal miners in Alabama, strippers in California, minor league baseball players, airline pilots, dollar store workers, museum workers, academic workers, adjunct instructors, nurses, journalists, rail workers. And speaking of rail workers, don't get a job on the railroad today if you want to spend time with your family. I have been working on the railroad all the live long day. But the contract doesn't have any paid sick days, which makes railroaders and their families feel frustrated and defeated. Each of these movements involve real people, families, livelihoods, and countless individual stories. Strikes, walkouts, firings, store closures. The NLRB is busier now than ever, and that's a good thing. Each worker, in the clutch of an employer-employee dynamic, in solidarity with their colleagues to demand their fair share. Many say they don't just want to quit, they want to improve the job itself. They don't hate the company. They want the company to recognize the on-the-ground working conditions that allowed it to grow in the first place and come to the table. To be sure, few could have connected, clouded by the politics and mandate controversies, 
a devastating pandemic with a labor revival. But we have to admit, an experience as disruptive as COVID was collectively was bound to do just that. You don't internalize death at such a scale, invisible risk to such a degree, without being reminded to take nothing for granted. And since, for most of us, work largely defines us, or at the least, controls us, then it's only natural to want to reclaim some control. More and more, the workers of the United States are realizing it's a union, yes, and nothing less. As I mentioned, New York State United Teachers celebrated its 50th anniversary this year. To mark the occasion, an excellent revealing documentary was produced, NYSET, The First 50 Years, chronicling the fascinating history of the organization and its continued importance today. One of the most instructive stories from the film concerns collective bargaining, the foundation of Unionism 101. The very idea that a committee of staff representatives could sit down with administration and reach a mutually agreed-upon legal document known as the contract. This is exactly what workers around the country are striving for, for the company to sit down and bargain in good faith, a right never given unilaterally. In this clip from the documentary, NYSET member Tony Buffaro relates a story on the early challenges teachers faced from districts while exercising their legally protected collective bargaining rights, and how strength and unity overcame threats and obstacles in their way. Governor Rockefeller proposed a series of bills called the Taylor Law, which gave teachers the right to bargain collectively. I was a fairly new teacher, no tenure, sitting in a faculty meeting run by the principal, and it always ended with his giving 10 minutes to the Teachers Association president, who began to explain the new law that was recently passed. And he said one of the provisions of this new law was that we were to put together a bargaining committee. And this bargaining committee would bargain terms and conditions of employment. Would there be any volunteers that would be willing to sit? Nobody's hand went up. I didn't know what terms and conditions really meant. But I raised my hand and a veteran teacher who it was kind of like a mentor to me. He said, put your hand up. The president of the Teacher Association said, thank you, Mr. Buffaro. I'll get you some more information on what we have to do. With that, the meeting was adjourned. People got in their cars, went home. The very next morning, I was teaching. There was a knock at my door. It was the high school principal's secretary. She said, the superintendent would like to see you in his office. So I puffed up. I thought, well, see, this is a collective bargaining thing is really, it's going to be something, you know, he, he wants to get started now in talking about terms and conditions. So I said, okay, I gave the class some work. And I went down to the superintendent's office and, and he said, Mr. Buffaro, I understand that you have volunteered to be the chairperson of the, the collective bargaining committee. And I said, yeah, well, nobody else wants to volunteer. It's a dirty job, but somebody has to do words of that effect thinking we were having a friendly conversation. He said, on my desk, I have uh, two letters, and he put his hand on one and another hand on another, and he said, one letter is a letter of resignation as chairman of the negotiating committee. And the second letter here is a letter of resignation from the district. 
you have until 2.30 this afternoon to choose which letter you're going to solve. Well, I was taken aback. I said, <clears throat> I'm not going to sign either. I said, are you threatening me? He said, no, it's a, it's a reality. I'm giving you a choice. I went down to the faculty room. I was grabbing a cup of coffee, really shaken. And a friend of mine, a colleague, said to me, what's wrong? And I explained what happened. And he said, he threatened you. And I said, well, that's the way I interpret it. And he said, who else is on the committee? And I said, well, nobody. He said, yeah, I'll serve. I'll serve. He began to tell my story to others as they came into the faculty room. And at the end of the day, 18 of us went into the superintendent's office and we said, and they said, there will be no letter signing today. We are the bargaining team. Thus, little to my knowledge, we had formed a union. While teachers today manage a number of challenges any of us could name, without this right, the job would be unimaginable. Just ask one in a state where this right has been curtailed. In this clip from The Real News, a teacher from Wisconsin discusses the current impact of Act 10, a state law passed in 2011, which restricted collective bargaining for public employees, including public school teachers. I think the simplest way that I've ever heard this explained to me is that teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. So the better the working conditions for a teacher, it's the better like learning conditions for all of their students. Mm -hmm. And that's just simple. And even now that I'm a teacher, I can tell you, like, I wish I had more time. I work really hard. I love all my students. I care for them deeply. Patience is not a given <laughs> trait for everyone. <laughs> It's a really active trait that you work on constantly that bears a fairly heavy burden on you personally. Lesson planning, good lesson planning takes a lot, a lot of time. I wish I had one, two more hours of lesson planning so that I can provide the best lessons for my students. And so those are the things that teachers need to educate our students to the best of their abilities. Um, I can be quite honest, I'm not teaching students to the best of my abilities. If I had more time, I would. Well, I mean, let's talk about that, right? Because this this intertwines with Act 10, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, Act 10, for, for those who don't know, I mean, it did an incredible amount of damage, not just to, you know, uh, public sector teachers, but I mean, public sector workers. Then, as we said, Wisconsin became a right-to-work state. Um Collective bargaining for public sector workers was more or less taken away. Um, you know, pensions, uh, the pension system was kind of totally redone. Workers took big hits yeah. here in the past 10 years, and that has obviously impacted the ways that people are, are able to do their jobs, mm -hmm. uh, not just like the ways that workers are able to organize in unions to defend themselves, to demand what they need, uh, which... A lot of unions are still having trouble doing. Union density in Wisconsin went down significantly over the past 10 years. More just trying to give some background context for, for people watching. But I wanted to kind of bring that to eye level and ask you a little more about that. Like, both in terms of how Act 10 has shaped your working life as a teacher, but also just, you know, the life of a teacher in America in general, being as overworked, 
not having the time that you need. Could you just, for people who are watching who don't know what that's like, could you, I guess, flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, I think my understanding, so Act 10, we couldn't bargain on anything other than wages after that. And so that's time, um, that's all of extracurriculars, that's extra pay. It's just a lot of stuff that we don't get to bargain on anymore. And so what that looks like is we just keep losing little bits over and over and over. And I'm going to go through what it's actually like, like on a daily. So you're supposed to teach three classes a day if you're a high school teacher, right? Sometimes it could be the same class, sometimes just two different subjects. That means you have to prepare an entire presentation for your students, practice it, have activities for them, set up any sort of breakouts in a way that your classroom management isn't going to fall apart do all of that implement all of that and then grade everything and you got about an hour sometimes to do that for perhaps one or two classes so every day of the week right right? and (laughs) so i take work home every day I cry about it but i take it home (laughs) because you know it's the best that i can do for my students I teach English, so it's a lot of essays, it's a lot of writing, students need that constant feedback. So all of that time, it was just, it was taken from us. And I, and this is from talking to colleagues, I still have a pretty good scenario in my life. You know, elementary school teachers who have to teach all subject areas for kids all over the place in terms of their levels, in terms of special education, in terms of the scaffolding and help that they need. like. When te- well, yeah, when elementary teachers talk to me, I'm just like, <laughs> like, how are you still standing? Right. Um. And my neighbor, you know, she used to be a, a teacher, an elementary school teacher, and like she just couldn't do it anymore because the the asks that are made of of teachers are insane. And you know, and we're just supposed to do it out of the kindness of our heart. Right. And that's just not fair. Like, pay me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pay me for the kindness of my heart. Turning now to a brief story of worker-to-worker connection. Recently, a NYSET conference in our region highlighted the importance of knowing who is in your neighborhood, meaning who are the workers in your community who are organized just like you. Support them any way you can. Join a picket line. Put a sign in your yard. Donate to a strike fund. Or just talk. If you have an employer, a boss, which most of us do, you're just like me. We have unionized electricians working in my building installing new lights. One cold morning, I came in behind a worker maneuvering bulky equipment. While holding the door for him, I noticed a Union Yes bricklayer sticker on one of his boxes. You could see this and just go about your day. After all, you want to get inside and set up. The clock is ticking. Or you could speak up and make some quick common cause. So I told the guy I liked his sticker, pointing to it. He laughed and said he forgot it was there, but it was understood, and I went to my room to start the day, feeling lighter and a little stronger than if I'd just walked past. It's that simple, and I'm not one for small talk, usually. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can find Labor Force on Spotify for podcasters and select a level, starting at just a dollar a month. Also, please share, rate, and review to help others find the show. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care and stay Union Strong.